Men, you may be seated. I do invite you to turn with me either in your inserts or in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning we'll be reading through verses 13 through 17 as we pick up right where we left off from last week. And if you were with us last week, the first section of chapter 2 is quite a heavy section talking about the return of Christ as well as the events that must take place before he can return. And in doing so, the apostle and his co-writers gave us tools to fight false teaching and to give us assurance of what is ahead for us as believers. Well, our text today may seem like a major shift on that topic. It may feel out of place. But if we pay careful attention, we'll see that this is actually a continuation of how to be prepared for the return of Christ. You know, sometimes it's important as we think about preparing for something to get in proper condition. You know, if you're getting ready to go on a trip, you have to mentally go through your checklist. If you're uh, going to do an event or host someone over, there's certain things that that must be done in in a somewhat step-by-step fashion so that when that day arrives, you aren't caught off guard. And today, Paul Paul is going to speak to the heart of the believers, reminding them, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do so that when the day of the Lord does come, they're not caught off guard, that they are prepared, that they have taken those steps that he's laid out for us so that we might find that day with joy and not with anxiety and panic as it happens when we forget to put something on the calendar and then it's right in front of us. With that in mind, I do want us to turn our attention to our text this morning to see how we can learn these truths of standing firm and holding fast. Would you look with me at the word of the Lord? But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he place these truths upon all of our hearts and bless the hearing of it. And let us now go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Let us pray. Lord, many of us come this morning with burdens from the prior week. Many of us look ahead to the week to come and we don't know how we're going to make it. Through work, through family, through sickness, through trials, we can become overwhelmed by the weight of this world. But you promise us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. 
For Christ has carried our sin to the cross and nailed them there, covered them with his blood. And when you look at us, you see it no more. Father, we need this reminder this morning. We need to be secure in our hope, in our love, in our knowledge of you. Reveal these truths to us in the text this morning that we might have peace. We know we need it, Lord, and so we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Our text marks the second section of thanksgiving in this letter. It's a theme we've seen. Um, if you were with us through 1 Thessalonians, this was a, a common occurrence. Uh, Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy often broke into prayer of thanksgiving uh, in the midst of their letter. And this is the second time in 2 Thessalonians this has taken place. The first time being in chapter 1, and when it was in chapter 1, it was thanksgiving because of their faith, because of their endurance and persecution, because the gospel had gone forth. But here we see thanksgiving from a different perspective. It's less about what the church is doing, and it's more what is God doing. And that is a cause and a reason for praise. And... You know, don't we often find ourselves completely worn out because we don't take a step back to assess a situation and grasp the big picture? It's the old forest for the trees adage. You know, I can remember a movie I watched as a child. There was a city guy. He found himself on this farm. Um, He had to go visit some family members and they put him to work. And he was cleaning out a horse stall one day. I mean, there must have been a lot of horses in this stall, and I'll leave it at that. But he goes into this stall, and that was his task, was to clean out this stall. He sees a wheelbarrow and a, and a shovel, and, and the inner dialogue is, there's no way. There's too much mess here to clean up. But wanting to impress his family members and to show that he can tough it in the, um, the woods, if you will, he gets to work. And it, through the entire day, this task takes him like eight or ten hours. And the farmer gets back and starts laughing. He was expecting praise, and he gets laughter. And he's like, what's going on? And the farmer walks around the corner to the tractor. The keys are in it. Often, that's how we view our situation, don't we? We see a problem. We see a task. We see something that needs to be done. And we get so focused on that thing That we don't stop and go, hmm, let's take a step back, let's view the whole, and let's see what we've been given, the tools that we've been given to accomplish this task. So that we don't overwork ourselves, so that we don't misunderstand, so that we don't find ourselves in error. Because those are temptations if we don't really step back and appreciate what's going on. And I believe it is beneficial to take time back. In fact, Psalm 46.10, many of you have memorized this, be still and know that I am God. We live such a fast pace, it's easy to become distracted. The church in Thessalonica, they were still dealing with this misunderstanding about the resurrection of Christ. But the apostle, he, he understood that the best way to prepare the church was to face the bigger picture, and we're going to follow that pattern today. We're going to focus on the bigger picture this morning. We're going to talk about God, 
and what God is doing and what God has done. We're going to see that in three sections of our text. We're going to behold God in three ways this morning. First, we are going to behold the love of God. We'll see that in verse 13. Secondly, we will behold the calling of God in 14 and 15. And then finally, we will behold the comfort of God in 16 and 17. And as we do so, I hope we take this zoomed out view so that we can appreciate all that's going on around us. And this text, it does seem like a hard transition, doesn't it? We just finished talking about the Antichrist and his return and Jesus is destroying him to hear a prayer for the church. But remember, this section of Thanksgiving is more about God than it is about the church. Now, it is about the church, but ultimately, even the church is about God. And if we look at it from this perspective, we quickly realize, in light of all the difficult truths previously mentioned, all of the hardships the church has endured, all of the things they're still dealing with, Paul is overjoyed Because God has and will save the people of this church. Those who are his children. He will save them. And Paul is overjoyed at this. Even in spite of what we've just talked about. He begins. We ought always to thank God or give thanks to him for you brothers. Beloved by the Lord. This reminds us first and foremost of the need of prayer. As well as the benefits of prayer. Paul is reminding his readers, as he's done throughout these two letters, to be in constant prayer of thanks for the church. He goes on to say, because. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Speaking to the believers in the Thessalonian church, they're told God chose you them. This is the greatest act of love ever conceived. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us before we loved ourselves. They were chosen. This is not some coincidence. And it's not just that. It's not just that they were chosen. He uses an interesting term here. They were the first fruits to be saved. Now, if you recognize that term, most often it's denoted of Christ. Christ was of the first fruit, speaking to us as the church that we will rise because he rose. That because he was redeemed, we will be redeemed. And that is certainly the case, but that's not what's going on here. No, it's even more special than that in a way. He's telling the church, you believers currently reading this letter that were chosen by God, you're the first fruit in Thessalonica. There will be others that come to know me because of you. So not only are you chosen, you're also called to be my instrument for others that are chosen. You get to play a part in the eternal salvation of other people in this city and around the world. That is the part you play in this grand picture. That is where I have placed you in this church, in this season, in this time, in this difficulty. Remember, this is still going on amidst turmoil. They were chosen. 
And more than that, it, this is one of those, um, this would make a great infomercial this morning because we could just, after every point, but wait, there's more. Not only are they chosen, not only are they the first fruit, but then God says, I'm going to do the work through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. They were chosen, they were called to be first fruit, and that will happen, it will happen, not may happen, it will happen through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification, the process by which we die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. This takes place by the Spirit of God through the preaching and proclamation and understanding of the word of truth, which the Spirit enlightens. Did you catch that? You need the word of truth, but you need the Spirit. The Spirit opens up the word of truth in your mind and in your heart so that you can receive it, so that you can yield yourself to the Spirit, so that you can believe God. It's this wonderful cycle there where the Spirit works in you through the truth so that you can listen to the Spirit, so that you can trust in God. It's this perfect cycle where you play next to no part in it. That's great news, my friends. That is great news. You and I are loved because you're chosen given purpose, empowered by God, and then promised that he will be the one to complete the work in you that he requires for you to have a relationship with him. Remember, this is coming off the heels of speaking on the Antichrist and the day to come and the day of judgment and how dark that season, that epic in human history will be. Immediately following that, dear brothers and sisters, you have been chosen by God. This is your state today, Christian. You are loved by God. This is truth. And often, sadly, when we think about ourselves, if you described yourself to someone, do these descriptors come to mind? Are these what you talk about? I am Aaron, loved by God, chosen to be his vessel to display his glory on this earth and in the age of come. Is that how we talk about ourselves? Most of the time it's not. Most of the time we get so wrapped up in our hair color, our IQ, our job performance, the behavior of our children, or our 401k, that we miss what the Bible says about us. That's not vanity, dear friends. That's truth. God said it, you didn't. You just have to accept it. You are loved by God. There's a whole forest of God's love right before you. But wait, there's more. Because not only have you been loved, you've also been called. We've alluded to this, but let's look at our second section to see that it is on full display in this passage. Verse 14. To this, he called you through the gospel. While... This does bring to mind, you know, when we think of calls, we think of phone calls. That's not a good analogy for this right here. Because a lot of us, most of us, I would say, when we get a phone call, we don't right away answer it. We look at it. Hmm, do I know this number? Where's that zip code? Do I want to talk to them right now? You may know who it is, and you're like, nope, not right now. That's a 45-minute conversation that I don't want to have. And then you just let it ring so it goes to voicemail. Um, used to before um, modern phones, you know, you can't take the battery out. But when you could, my brother learned quickly, if you pull, yank the battery out while it's calling, it'll cut it out. And it'll seem like a dropped call. 
I mean, we could never get up with my brother because he just didn't like talking on the phone, which was a problem if you needed to get up with him. But um, yeah, that's how we treat calls, don't we? But this is not what we're talking about. That's not that kind of call. A call from God comes through the preaching of the gospel with the intent of salvation through the Holy Spirit and word of truth. It's impossible to resist. R.C. Sproul speaks in truths we confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10. It's the chapter on effectual calling. R.C. Sproul comments on that section by saying this. Effectual calling is an inward call by the Holy Spirit of God where a sinner who is spiritually dead and unable to respond to the gospel is made able by that same spirit to respond. This is called effectual because it will happen. When the Holy Spirit calls, people will respond in faith and come to Christ. There is no way to resist this call. It's guaranteed because it comes from God. And the benefits to this, they're astronomical. One of which Paul says here, So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You dear Christian, you're not only loved by God, but you're called by God so that you will obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Look at Jesus, resurrection morning. Look at Jesus in the final three or four chapters of the book of Revelation. Look at Jesus across his ministry, across what he came to do. And then listen to this verse again. You were called by God to share in that glory. As glorious as Jesus Christ is, so you too are called to be. And it's given to you by God. You can't do anything but to take it. And please, please don't miss the order of events here. This is very important. This is laid out. Paul is a master of structure. The level to which God loves you is displayed by his choosing you for salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of truth. More than that, you've been called to share in the glory of Christ of which you cannot reject or not receive after and only after that. Does Paul tell the church, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions you were taught, either by spoken word or by our letters. Stand firm because of the truths that I've previously mentioned. Salvation precedes obedience. Obedience is an outpouring of your salvation. James rightly says, I will show you my faith by my works. His works reveal his faith, not the other way around. And this is where we go right back into the earlier section of chapter 2. The best way to prepare for Christ's return is to accept the truth of God's word, rest in his promise for you, for this world and for the world to come. Word Sacraments and prayer, the ordinary means of grace, hold firm to the traditions. This is what we're called to do. This is how we're called to live. This is what we're called to keep because we've been loved, chosen, called, and empowered. It's not up to your strength. You would fail, I would fail. 
but it's already been accomplished and paid for. It would be like this. You as a peasant in a kingdom, the king wages war and levels his enemies. He utters or he issues a campaign against all of the enemies and he annihilates them. He establishes peace across the whole kingdom and then goes to you as the peasant, puts you on the throne, puts his crown upon your head and said, now keep the peace. There's no more enemies. There's nothing to do but have peace. There's nothing to do but enjoy the victory. There's nothing to do but celebrate what's already been done and you're simply told, now sit here and enjoy it. That's what God's saying for you. I've already won. Dear Christian, enjoy it. Live in it. Act like it. For you live a victorious life because you live a life in Christ. And on that day when I come back and it does, the day gets dark, it appears from Scripture that it will be a day of judgment and a day of reckoning, but not for you. For you are in Christ and what will that day be like for you? You will share in His glory. That's your state. That's who you are. And what does that do for us? Well, it should bring us great comfort. Let's look at our final section and we will see this. Typical of Paul, they conclude this section in a prayer to God. And in doing so, they review the truths that they've just covered and push us toward their ultimate conclusion. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Now, it's a bit of an aside, but it's very important. Note that they petition God and Jesus on equal terms. God the Father and Jesus the Son on the same plane. Part of misunderstanding about Christ's return and what was really plaguing the church in those early centuries was misunderstanding about Christ, who He was and what He came to do. And so if you note um, and pay attention, Paul and, and the other apostles are very careful and when they speak about Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us. God the Father and Jesus Christ loved us. They cared for us. They're, they're both God. And this brings to bear all sorts of truths about Jesus Christ. This brings to bear all of the promises that have been made about Jesus coming back. We know he's coming back because he is God and God keeps his promises. They tie that in for that purpose so that you may know this is true and this will happen. We can trust these truths because we can trust Jesus. Eternal comfort and hope. Comforted by the truth of God's word. Hope for what is to come. This should cause us to not fear the days ahead, but recognize that God is gracious. I mean, come on. If you've not seen that in this text up to this point, I don't know what else I can do for you. God chooses. God saves. God calls his own people to himself. God empowers them to live out holy lives, tells them to stand firm and have hope, and then gives them the firm foundation and the source of hope through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the word of truth so that they can live out exactly what they're being called to do. And then his final words, to send this home, God will comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word and work. 
in the midst of a fierce debate on who is right, which elder has the right understanding, when Jesus will come back, has he come back, how is that going to relate to the church? And all of that's going on in the backdrop. I pray God will comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word and work. He prays for unity. Paul prays for clear minds. Paul prays for understanding. And let me ask you this. How many of us need those things today? How many of us need comfort, hope, clear minds, unity in thinking as it relates to the truths of God? How many of us, knowing that we need those things, have prayed to God that he grant us those things? Paul is willing to pause a theological treatise on Jesus Christ and his return to pray a prayer. That's not some accident. That's not some, you know, oh, I got distracted and I decided to pray. No, Paul is saying by his writing of this text in this letter that this is a prayer offered to God for this church because they needed it. It was so important. It was worth the precious space that it was given. Remember, there was only so much space you could have. That's why we get first and second a lot of times is because they ran out of room, especially when in the Old Testament. And you and I need these things today too. We need these truths. And what does that do for us? What does this cause in our lives? Good works and word. Resting in God's truth will live will lead to us living lives, carrying out good deeds and words to the glory of God. Do you think we can do that if we constantly worry about what is ahead? Do you think that we are effective when we become crippled by anxiety over potential outcomes? No, of course not. The Thessalonican church is a perfect example of what that does to one's soul. These topics are important, but they're best understood in their proper context. You know, not very often, but sometimes I find myself overwhelmed with discouragement. I think about opportunities that I've been given, opportunities I take, opportunities I miss, opportunities I look at and like my phone calls go, no, not right now. I think about the future and things that may take place or may not, and, and fear overcomes me at times. But what do I do when that happens? I have a few friends that I can go to and, and they're very good to me because they'll sit and they'll let me give it all out. They'll get it, I'll give it out, I'll give my rationale, I'll give my explanation and here are my sub points and my sub points on top of my sub points and they listen. And what do they do? They just point me to the word of God. I'm sure that's how you feel, Aaron, but here's the truth of God's word. Is he gonna, is he gonna forget those? Is he gonna fail to do what he's promised he's gonna do? No, you're right. And they bring comfort to my soul. They, they bring peace in a time of turmoil, and I've got friends that I can trust very much. Brothers and sisters, I pray that that's the church for you. I pray that we are a body, that when one another, when we're going through difficulties, when we're confused about biblical topics, when there's a misunderstanding, when there's turmoil going on because of the world or how we translate the word of God, I pray that we can go to each other, like this church had Paul and Timothy and Silas, and listen to one another and then go, okay, I'm not belittling what you're saying. I'm not belittling your situation. But here are the truths of the word of God. How do they fit into what you're saying? And by the way, you're called, loved, chosen, and purposed by God to serve God's purpose.
How does that fit? And I guarantee you, if we did that and we made a practice of that more and more, we would find these problems, they're not going to go away, but they'll become less and less the focus as we zoom out and see the God who is watching over us, cares for us, loves us, and gives us his own name, calls us his own. That is our promise this morning, and that is my prayer for you. In fact, let us go to the Lord and pray that very thing. Oh, Father, we need you. Every moment of every day, every hour, we need you. Father, I pray that we as a church would be a people who so love one another that we would be willing to listen, to proclaim your truths, to share the love of your word with one another, to struggle together, to live as you've called us to live. This church in Thessalonica is an example of both what it means to understand our love for you and to forget that love. Paul, Timothy, and Silas pour out their heart for us on the page, and really they're pouring out your heart. And so we thank you, O Lord. We thank you for this reminder this morning that we simply need to behold our God, to behold your love, to behold your calling, and to behold your comfort. And as we do so, everything tends to go into focus as we fix our eyes upon you. We thank you for this, O Lord, and we pray that you would be with us each and every day, each and every hour. And we ask this all in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen.